So, yep, that's Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the whole temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, you have said that all scripture is breathed out by you and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we ask that your word would do that in our hearts today, so that we might be in your hands good and faithful servants, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a universally accepted truth that once you have hit rock bottom, the only way is up. And in our time in the book of Isaiah, rock bottom is exactly where we find ourselves at the beginning of Isaiah 6. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, the opening overture of Isaiah has been a devastating expose of the state of God's people in Isaiah's day. Isaiah lived and ministered in the the city of Jerusalem with its beautiful temple, with its great history, back to King David, back to Moses, back even to Abraham. But now it's the story of corruption and greed, violence, rebellion against God, with a very thin religious veneer over the top that masks their deep inner hypocrisy. But God has also promised in the overture that things would not always be this way. Back in chapter 1, Isaiah asked the key question, how can this faithless city 
Uh, this city full of people who claim to worship God and yet deny him with their very action and their very attitude. How can this faithless city be once again the faithful city that you, God, have promised that they will be? How can old and, and sinful Jerusalem become the new redeemed Zion that will unite all the nations of the world in peace and prosperity and the worship of God? And so by the time we get to today, by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 6, the thing we're really missing out on so far is the plan. What's God's plan? What is God going to do to transform this city and this people and ultimately the whole world? And that's what we get in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the plan, uh, except it's the craziest plan I've ever heard of. Come to verses 9 to 13 at the end of the chapter. Let me kind of just outline God's plan for redeeming the world to you. Step one, verse nine, send a prophet that no one listens to and no one understands. Step two, verse 10, so that the people don't repent and don't turn back to God. Until step three, 90% of the land is completely destroyed in verses 11 and 12. And then just so that you think that maybe that last tenth, that last 10% is going to be where salvation lies, verse 13, strike it again, literally burn it all again until all that is left of the holy seed, the nation of Israel, is just a, a tree stump, a charred street tree stump in an empty field. What a great plan. There's God's plan to redeem his people. There's God's plan to redeem the world. It's the craziest plan that you've ever heard of. What sort of a plan is this? What sort of a ministry is this for Isaiah? To never be understood. To never be believed. Preach a message that's only ever going to harden its hearers. But it is God's plan. And to understand his plan, we first of all need to understand the God who's come up with it. And so in this chapter, we and Isaiah, we see three things that are there in the passage. We see a staggering vision in verses 1 to 4. And then we see a stunning provision in verses 5 to 7. And then and only then do we see a surprising mission in verses 8 to 13. But first of all then, the first thing we see is the staggering vision that Isaiah receives. A vision of God in verse 1. Let me read it to you again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God shows himself to Isaiah, and he shows himself to be a king, seated on a throne, high and, and lifted up. And it's not insignificant that he sees God as a king in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had ruled Judah for 52 years. He'd been an impressive king in many ways. He'd brought them peace. He'd brought them prosperity. He'd brought them unity. His death was a deeply unsettling time. But even though earthly kings come and go, God is always on his throne. Those who are the rulers of nations are not the ultimate rulers. All human authority is but derived from God's ultimate authority. There is a king of kings and a lord of lords. And this is the one that Isaiah sees in his vision. And this king is holy. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. 
With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphim are spiritual beings, uh, heavenly beings like angels. Literally, they are burning ones. And these seraphim, they announce to one another and to Isaiah what God is like, that God is holy. He is sacred, transcendent, set apart, pure. God has no rivals, no equals, no competition, no comparisons. He is worthy of worship like no one else is. He is righteous like no one else is. He is like no one else is. In other words, if you think of God as kind of a, a superhuman, as, a, as an extraordinary human, if you kind of start with us and kind of just scale up from there, you'll, have a, you'll actually never come anywhere near to understanding the real God, the God that Isaiah saw even though we are made in his image. Because God is holy. You cannot compare him with anyone or anything else. And this God is more than just holy. This God is holy, holy, holy. Now, in Hebrew, which is the language this was originally written in, if you wanted to emphasize a word... One of the ways you could do it is not by adding a little adjective to the front of it, not by putting a very or, a, or something like that, was by doubling the word. So, you know, for example, if I wanted to tell Bon, my wife, that she was beautiful in Hebrew, just as a change from saying it in English, if I wanted to say that she was beautiful, I could say to her that she is beautiful, beautiful. Not meaning that she's doubly beautiful, but meaning that she is beautiful to the power of beautiful. But it's only with God that a word is emphasised three times. And it's only ever with this word. God is the thrice holy one. Holy to the power of holy to the power of holy. Incomparable to the power of incomparable to the power of incomparable. And that's why the seraphim cover themselves with four of their six wings. They are so awed to be in his presence. It's a gesture of reverence and humility on their part. And we'll see in verse 5 that Isaiah instinctively reacts much like the seraphim do, with great humility and even fear. But there is a third dimension to this vision of God, this staggering vision of God, and that is glory. Uh, This too, the seraphim declare to one another in in verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is about the weight of a person's significance. It's about praiseworthiness, it's about honour, it's about shining distinction. Sports people seek it in the thick of competition. Soldiers seek it in battle. Academics seek it in their their papers and their their research. And we all seek it in many ways in the esteem that we look for in others. But God has it. He is glorious. And in fact, he is so glorious that the world itself is not big enough to contain that glory. Every corner of the globe pulses with our creator's magnificence. And just as the temple is filled with the train of his robe, so the earth is filled with his glory. 
And as if to underline the point in, in verse 4, when the seraphim declare the, the holiness and the glory of God, the thresholds and the doorposts shake. The temple where Isaiah found himself was filled with smoke. And it seems to be always like that when God appears. And so when God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai, the mountain shook and was sheathed in fire and smoke. God's presence is earth-shaking because the weight of his glory is greater than even the weight of the earth itself. And the weight of his glory means that this is not a God to be taken lightly. This is not a God about whom we can say, yeah, God and me are mates. God's the one who gets me out of trouble when I get myself in a, a little bit too deep. This is not a God that you can glimpse and somehow remain unchanged. This is a vision that provokes us to see God in his fullness, to see him as he truly is, to see his surpassing kingship, to see his white hot holiness and to see his resplendent glory and to tremble under the weight of it all. And that's what Isaiah does before he is given a stunning provision. Let's just go back one step because, you know, what, what do you and I do when we, we meet someone of greatness in our world today? You know, what happens when you, you run into a sporting hero or, a, or a, a movie star or something like that? You know, how do people respond today? Well, you do what we all do. You reach immediately for your phone, you lean in for the selfie and then you put it up on Instagram or whatever is your social media of choice in the hope that somehow by being close to this person of greatness, somehow their greatness might rub off on you and you might become greater in the process. But how does Isaiah respond when he encounters the greatness of God? Verse 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What happens when Isaiah sees the glory of the thrice Holy One? He pronounces the seventh woe. That's what he does. Last week in Isaiah chapter 5, we actually saw six woes that Isaiah spoke against the nation of Israel for their sin and their rebellion against God. And someone actually came up to me and said, where's the seventh woe? Don't things in the Bible come in sevens? Where's the seventh woe? It's here, in Isaiah 6.5. It's the woe that Isaiah speaks against himself. You see, Isaiah knows that if he compares himself with the rest of the nation of Israel, actually he looks pretty good. He looks like a righteous person. Uh, you know, and I think, without a doubt, Isaiah probably is the most righteous man of his generation. But when he sees who God really is, when he comes face to face with the thrice holy one, then it means that now Isaiah can see himself for who he really is. Compared to Israel, he might look good, but that's not the comparison that counts. Compared to God, Isaiah is confronted by his own uncleanness, his unholiness. And he instantly knows how far short of the glory of God he has fallen. 
it's easy for us to compare ourselves to others, isn't it? It's easy to look around at our world today and find plenty of examples of people who are much worse than we are and to point to them and and say to God, well, look, God, I'm not as bad as that. Surely, you know, you must accept me. Surely I'm I'm worthy of your love and, and worthy to stand in your presence. Just look at all these other people in the world today. But of course, that's not the comparison that counts, is it? It's when we compare ourselves to God that counts. And when we compare ourselves to God, well, I have no doubt that we have the same experience as what Isaiah had. Now, why does Isaiah single out his lips? Why does he uh, kind of focus in on that part of his uncleanness? Well, perhaps it's because he has seen the God who speaks only what is true and loving, and Isaiah knows that that's not what he is like. Or perhaps Isaiah knows that what he says reveals a lot about what's truly going on in his heart. It was the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 6 who said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or perhaps it's because Isaiah knows that he's unable to praise God as wholeheartedly and purely as the seraphim. Or perhaps it's D, all of the above. Because it's always D, it's always all of the above. And because all of those things are true. Seeing God, Isaiah's conclusion is instant. I'm no better than the rest of Israel. My lips are just as unclean as they are. And God's holiness is just as much a threat to me as it is to all Israel. You see, God's holiness is a bit like this. There's a really big difference between getting dirt on your hands and getting dirt in your eyes. Uh, You know, uh, dirt on your hands... We can put up with a fair bit of dirt on our hands, can't we? Yesterday I was fixing the retic at our place. I was digging up some old pipes and fixing some leaks and all that kind of stuff. You can get pretty dirty before you really feel the need to go and, and have to wash them all off. But anything in the eye, any dirt in the eye, and you've just got to deal with it immediately, don't you? It's just too painful. It's, it's too irritating. You've, you've just got to do something about it. Why? Well, because our eyes are so much cleaner than our hands. Now, for us, sin is like having dirt on our hands. We can put up with a fair bit of it before we really feel like we've got to do something about it. But for God, sin is like dirt in the eye. Why? Because he's so much cleaner than we are. He's so much holier than we are. And so God must deal with sin. He must get rid of it. It cannot exist in his presence. He cannot stand it and his holiness will destroy it. For God to not deal with sin would be for God to become something less than the thrice holy one. And in the burning light of of God's holiness, Isaiah realizes this. Isaiah expects to be utterly destroyed by that holiness And so in verse 6, as the the seraphim, the burning one, with a live burning coal comes out from the altar, Isaiah thinks, yes, here it is. Here comes the, the burning holiness of God. Come to destroy me from the altar. Just as it did Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, when they sinned against God in the presence of his holiness. 
or the slow burn of leprosy that God inflicted on King Uzziah when he sinned against God in the presence of his holiness. Isaiah expects destruction. But instead, the fiery holiness of God does something remarkable. The seraphim touches the burning coal to his lips, to the very uncleanness that ruined Isaiah. And what does verse 7 say? With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, somehow the heavy holiness of God does not destroy Isaiah. It cleanses him. It takes away Isaiah's sin. And it brings forgiveness. It brings atonement. The making right of what has been wrong. The rebel is reconciled. And Isaiah, he didn't ask for it. He didn't earn it. And he certainly doesn't deserve it. But he definitely needed it. And God provided it swiftly and completely and unexpectedly. It's a stunning provision. And in it is a hint of hope. Because you see, maybe if God can do this for Isaiah, maybe God can do it for all Israel. And if God can do it for all Israel, then maybe God can do it for the whole world. Maybe God, the fiery holiness of God, can come in purification and cleansing and forgiveness and not just in judgment. But now that Isaiah's sins are atoned for, God decides to put Isaiah's cleansed lips to work. And God commissions Isaiah for his mission as a prophet. And we move from a staggering vision and a stunning provision to a surprising mission. In verse 8, God actually speaks for the first time and asks, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then you can almost imagine a tiny little Isaiah down there tugging on the hem of God's robe saying, Here I am, send me, I'll go. And I do find Isaiah's eagerness to be very challenging. It seems that God's holiness has burned away all of Isaiah's uncleanness. But so too, it's also burned away all of his selfish ambitions, all of his fears, all of his desires for personal glory. God has burned away everything that was stopping Isaiah from serving God with his whole heart. And I find that very challenging. I find that challenging when I consider the conditions that I so easily set on my service of God. God, I'll I'll serve you if you give me a good mark in that exam that I'm worried about. God, I'll serve you if you give me that job that I really want, that I'm really desperate for. God, I'll serve you if you give me that relationship that I, I I really feel like I need. And when we offer to serve God like that, are we really serving God? Or are we really serving what's on the other side of the if? I find Isaiah's eagerness very challenging. But our eager volunteer is still somewhat naive. So in verse 9, God fills him in on the mission. Verse 9, God said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding 
be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You can almost hear the exasperation in God's voice there, can't you? You He even calls them this people rather than my people, which is something you only ever do when you're really upset. And God's plan is to reinforce their calloused hearts. The Israelites were hard towards God, and God's judgment on them is that he refuses to soften them. They chose to ignore God's word, and so they now will not be given understanding of God's word. They chose to shut their eyes to God, and so now God will not show himself to them. And this is surprising, this is even sad, but sadly it's not uncommon. It's actually one of the explanations that the Bible gives for people's refusal to listen to God. It's not a simple case that some people are resistant to what God said. It's often that God responds to people's resistance by making them more resistant. Again, I can't help but think of Pharaoh and his story of the hardness of his heart towards God. That began with him hardening his heart towards God, and yet by the end it was God who was hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that is the nature of listening to God's Word. Whenever we listen to God's Word, it either draws us in, it either draws us closer to Him, it either softens our heart, or it pushes us further away and it, and it hardens our heart towards God. The one thing that God's Word never does is leave you unchanged. Now, Isaiah is very surprised, uh, just as surprised as we are about his mission. And so in verse 11, he asks, how long is this going to go on for? How long do I have to be the rejected prophet before I can be the accepted prophet? How long until they will will listen to me? His question assumes rightly that God will not always be angry with his people. But for now, God's answer is never. They will never repent. God has passed sentence on Israel and Judah and Isaiah's job is to put that into effect and even their unresponsiveness to Isaiah's message is part of their judgment. They have chosen arrogance and indifference and so now God has handed them over to the consequences of their sin. The entire nation will be devastated and sent into exile. The first 90% in verses 11 and 12 And then the last remaining 10% will be burned up in verse 13. Until all that is left is a charred stump in the ground where there was once a proud tree. And this is a little hint of how Israel will go into exile first, only to be followed by Judah almost 140 years later. But is there any hope in all of this? And there is one tiny little glimmer. A little glimmer, a little ember that will be fanned into flame in the chapters to come in Isaiah. You see, the stump that is described here is described as the holy seed. And that's another way of talking about Israel as the the chosen offspring of Abraham. But to call this a seed is interesting because what do seeds do? They grow. And new life can spring from burned up dead trees. 
I mean, you, you've seen what happens when a, a bushfire sweeps through an area and everything looks dead and, and black now, but, you know, come back next season, come back a year later, and what will you see? You'll see little shoots of green growing out of the black wood. And this is how it will happen too with Israel, God is saying. The holy God will ensure that there remains a holy seed in the land. And what we will see in chapters to come is from that seed will grow a new and restored Israel. In his determination to purify his people, God's plan is nothing less than to start all over again. God will reduce Israel to nothing more than the tiniest of seeds, but God has not forgotten his promises and God has not forgotten his people. There will be new life again. The seed will grow. The trees will return. And so all the way through, when you get all the way through to Isaiah 65, once again, we will see Israel as a great forest. And once again, God's people will be called oaks of righteousness. And their sin will be dealt with. And new life and restoration will eventually come. But these words, these ancient words, they still have meaning for us today, don't they? We know the God who does not change. The God that Isaiah saw in his vision is the God that we know today. The God who appeared to Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died is the same God as now. He's still king still ruling the world, still holy, still glorious to the ends of the earth. And when we see him clearly, he still changes us. In the pages of the Bible, we do come face to face with the God of Isaiah 6, in all his majesty and holiness and his glory. And when we do, he changes us. And in particular, we come to realise that the greatest need of our lives is to have our guilt taken away and to have our sin atoned for. That might not be apparent when we compare ourselves to others, but when we compare ourselves to God, it becomes blindingly clear as it did for Isaiah. And we should pay careful attention to that. When we face God, nothing is more important than atonement. When we stand before the holiness of God, nothing is more important than being made clean, being accepted by him, being right with him, being holy before him. And that's where this chapter not only provokes us, but it actually also reassures us. Because the God who is holy and before whom we can be nothing but ashamed is also the God who provides atonement for his people. He is the God who wants to relate to us, who wants to love us, who who devotes himself to removing any obstacle to that love. That's why a seraph flew to Isaiah with a a burning coal in in a set of tongs. But it's also why Jesus Christ came to earth. From the very beginning, Jesus came to die. He came to be rejected. He came to speak words that would not soften people's hearts, but harden them. On several occasions, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 10 
and speaks to them about his own ministry, that his was a ministry of hardening, his was a ministry of rejection, his was a ministry that would lead to his death. And he came to experience the utter desolation that guilty people deserve. To be rejected not just by human beings, but even ultimately to be rejected by God. As on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, for Isaiah, when the fiery judgment of God leapt out from the altar, it didn't destroy him, it cleansed him. But for Jesus, when the fiery judgment of God leapt out from the altar, it did destroy him for three days until he rose again. But because Jesus was clean, he had no need to be cleansed. Instead, by his death, he cleans all those who trust in him. Jesus atoned for the sins of those who have faith in him by his blood shed on the cross. And knowing the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually reshapes our response to the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God. The God who does not change is still fearsome. But to those who've come to Christ, he is no longer terrifying. The burning coal of Christ has already touched our lips. God has already looked upon us in Christ and said, your guilt is taken away. One of those great words that Sarah read, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken our sins away. And that verse is fulfilled in Christ Jesus at the cross. And so all that remains now is the responsibility for receiving God's word. Every time we hear it, it draws us either a little closer or it drives us a little further away. And I wonder what it's doing in your heart tonight. Don't allow your hearts to grow hard to God's word. And don't risk God hardening it any further. Open your eyes to the God who speaks to you. Open your ears to hear what he is saying. And open your hearts to respond in faith and trust. Turn to him and all he offers is yours. And of course, this hope is not just for us here. It's actually for everyone, isn't it? It's for everyone who is around us. Uh, that any who will listen to God's word will be the holy seed in this land. We are the holy seed in this land. We are fresh shoots of new life, offering new life to others. My prayer for each one of us is that we would so see the God of Isaiah 6, his majesty, his holiness, his glory, that we will allow Christ's stunning provision to change us. And that we will spend our days listening to him, listening to his words, but not just listening, sharing. Sharing what has been shared with us in the hope that others too might be given soft hearts. In the hope that others too will, will see God as Isaiah saw God. And in the hope that they too will see Jesus as we see Jesus, as our King, as our holiness, and one day even our glory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given for us, written so long ago, and yet you are the same God today as you were that day when you appeared to Isaiah, a king, holy and glorious. Lord, may we see you as you are. Lord, may we be humbled by you and by the stunning provision of Christ for our sins. May we have soft hearts to listen to your word. May we be the holy seed in this land, fresh shoots of new life, offering new life to the world, life in Christ. And may you give them soft hearts also, that they might see you and they might see Jesus as we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.